Today, we continue with our study um, of the Psalms of Ascent. And we are discussing the fourth of such Psalms, Psalm 123. And guess who forgot his glasses? So I'm making this as big as I possibly can. <clears throat> the doctor has very much recommended that I... Uh, There's some cheaters over there. <laughs> It's all right. Uh, he's recommended that I uh, use glasses to reading uh, to read. So um, I, of course, have ignored him for two years. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it's not getting better. But we. Uh, so Psalm 123. This afternoon, before we get into it, I, I, I received a phone call, um, and I'll give you a little uh, backstory. When I was 20, it was my first experience going off. Uh, to plant churches at 20 years old. I was single, I went off to San Diego, and uh, the goal was to, um, at the end, plant four churches in four different areas, two in Southern California and two in Northern Mexico. Um, but my first assignment there wasn't one of ministry, wasn't one of evangelism. I got there, and uh, the, the pastors there had a terrible situation. Um, and so, not getting into detail of their situation, the problem is they, they were unable, uh, because of uh, legal issues, uh, no fault of theirs, uh, they needed someone to help out at home with their children. And so I show up ready to do some evangelistic work, and the first thing I get told is, I'm all of a sudden a babysitter of three children. Um, nine, seven, and five. Two females, one boy. And so now I'm 20 myself, super mature. Um, <laughs> and so, but it was it was a beautiful t it was a beautiful time. I spent two years with them. I spent uh, about four or five months doing that, and then finally we got into the work that we 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 intended to do. Um, and praise God, the four churches are still up and running. Um, but I had such wonderful time with that family with that children, they still to this day, they call me uncle, they call me for my birthday, call them. Uh, I've, I've, ma I've married two of the, two, the, the, the two oldest. I've, I've flown to California and I've married them both. It's a beautiful thing. And so today I got a phone call from the youngest daughter and she tells me that, um, she said, you're gonna be an uncle. Um, and she goes, great news, she's pregnant and, and, and she's telling me these things and we start speaking and she has me on speakerphone and we start reminiscing. And I started remembering the things, right, that we did, the good times, right, the, 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 the great events. But as a discussion continued, and even after, as I continued to think of, of, of our conversation, I realized that it wasn't so much the things we did. It wasn't so much the activities. It wasn't so much the late night talks or the movies or the trips or all the things that we did. It was the people. And I started to reminisce some more about just some of the best times and some of the things I wish I had done or seen. Or, and it all surrounded people. I'm, 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 I'll be 48 this year. When I look back, I don't think about the things I didn't get to do. I think about the people. The people I'm no longer with. The people that are no longer with me. And we see something similar uh, in this 123rd Psalm. Uh, and, and today I want us to focus on, and as we read the Psalm, 
we're, 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 we're called by the psalmist to not focus on the things per se, but to focus on a person. And uh, that'll be our focus today. I'd like to read the psalm. Psalm 123, before we begin, it's, it's, it's four verses. Someone back there was heckling me about, I, I only had four verses. I will remind you that I was assigned the conclusion of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which was two verses, and we went for an hour and 25 minutes. <laughs> to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, <clears throat> excuse me, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. People of ancient Israel went on pilgrimage to the temple to worship. This was a regular thing. And these are the songs that they sang as they traveled to express their faith. Now, as a community sings its faith, it also comes to embrace the faith at a deeper level. The first four psalms in this collection of Psalms of Ascent, um, which today is the fourth, suggest a journey with a context of distress for the pilgrim community that, is, uh, that wrote it, that sang this for the first time. They anticipate arriving at Mount Zion. We've seen that in the previous three Psalms. And in the meantime, the community looks to God for help along the way. Now, Psalm 123 was probably written um, either in exile with a, longing toward, with a longing toward Jerusalem or related to the exile after they had returned in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. Again, this is not a perfect science, uh, but this is where we probably are as far as the writing of this psalm. And as they were rejected, right, they were heckled, they were attacked by the, by the people surrounding them, right, as they attempted to rebuild the temple and as they attempted to rebuild the city walls. And this background helps us understand the weightiness of this psalm as they would have sung it in remembrance of this difficult time. I think sometimes we forget, we sing the songs and we don't, we don't kind of, we forget why, right? We forget why. I, 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 I always remember the, the hymn, It Is Well, right? With my soul, I don't remember if that's the title of it or not, but, but we all know this. The, 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 the composer of that song wrote that song on, on a ship as he passed the very spot where his children had died, where they had drowned in a, in a, in a boating accident. And he sings this song, It Is Well With My Soul. We, we, we forget that. It, it, when I understand that the writer of that song wrote it in those circumstances, I sing that song differently. I hear the lyrics differently. The words mean more. And so when, when, when we read Psalm 123, maybe we don't understand it so, but those on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to pilgrimage, worshiping on their way toward Jerusalem, toward Zion, they would have understood this, and they would have sang this with that profound respect and that profound emotion, uh, understanding what this song meant. And so 
Um, we're going to look at this, and please keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at this, and there's eight things I'd like to look at. Um, eight elements uh, that I see that, that I, I see in this. Uh, hold on one second. Sorry. There's eight things I see here, elements of this prayer of suffering. And so, first thing we're gonna look at is place. The place of prayer, the place the prayer is directed to you. So 123 verse one, to you I lift up my eyes. See, the author of this psalm understood, is this putting, is this, look at that. <laughs> I did not mean to do that, but uh, here we go. So my presentation has subtitles. I love it. All right. Um, technology. The author understood the direction in which he needed to look. To you, I lifted my eyes. This is, this, is, this is a lesson, and typically we don't do this. When we, when we do Bible studies, when we look at a text and we break it down, we're typically looking, right? We, we, we don't arrive to application immediately. We don't start looking at what this means to me. We start looking at the text, right? And we want to analyze where, we analyze the context, who this was to, who, right? who, who said it, who said it to, what was the surrounding scenario, circumstance. We can't really do this here in this psalm because we don't know all of those details. And so this is a psalm, this is a song, this is a prayer. And so it's a prayer that leads us to a place of devotion. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the psalm as a devotional and examine what that means um, in the context of this, of this passage. To so you, I lift up my eyes. He understood the direction. He understood where he needed to look. So the first thing I look at when I, when I, when I, I look at the place where my prayer is headed to, I understand that I am praying to God. And the first thing I need to do as someone that prays to God is pray God high. Lift him up. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. We lift God high. The psalmist here is recognizing the first thing he does is he turns his eyes to you, God. He turns his eyes to the heavens. He lifts them. He, he, he makes an effort to look up. He makes an effort to recognize symbolically where God is. Right? We know God, I look up, God is everywhere. We, I, if, if, if heaven had a geographical point, I don't know what side on the earth that would be. The point is, we look up. That's the expression. I look up. I understand that I am lowly. God is great. God is up on high. We pray God high. Because our focus needs to be upward. The problem with prayer, particularly in this day and age, is that it's about me, me, me. Because it's easy to come to God in prayer and begin with ourselves. Amen? It's easy to start, Lord, I need. Lord, I want. Lord, look at this situation that I have. Me, me, and me. See, what Jesus taught us differently and the disciples asked him, he said, Lord, we don't know how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And he starts like this. Our Father, where is he? Who art in heaven, 
right? It's this, it's this elevated perspective, this elevated attitude, not, this, 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 this fact that God, I am praying to the God who is on high, El Elyon, the most high. That is why I'm directing my prayer. And Jesus continued and he said, hallowed be thy name. He brings worship to God. He elevates the name of God. He praises and exalts the name of God. It is God first. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, as it is where? In heaven. Pray God high. By doing this, it keeps our focus away from what is around us. It keeps us from having a Peter moment. We will never walk on water, but we sure drown in the waves. We sure drown in the waves. Right? Peter took his eyes off of the one who had made his miracle possible. And we do that. We take our eyes away from the one who made this miracle of salvation possible. Who changed the men and women like you and me and made us who we are today. When we look back and see what we used to be and what we were and we can look forward and thank God for his grace, mercy, and goodness, that miracle that has occurred in our lives, he made it possible. But oh, how easy it is for us to get distracted and look away. To you I lift up my eyes. He says, oh you who are enthroned in the heavens. We know who it's directed to. We know where it's directed to. Now, who is it directed to? The person. And this class is an ode to Pastor Russell that I've done my very best to alliterate today. <laughs> oh you who are enthroned in the heavens. We don't just look in that direction, we look to him. We look to God, not because of what he offers, but because of who he is. Amen? Amen. Not because of what he has to offer, not because of the benefits. Right? God isn't a job where I weigh because of salary and insurance and whatever else. We come and we look to God and we call on God and, and, and we stand in awe of him because of who he is. Because number one, he is God, right? We hear of his attributes, right? He is sovereign. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all good. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is not dependent of anyone, anything. Bible tells us that he is savior, that he is helper, that he is provider. Isaiah reminds us that he is a wonderful counselor, that he is a mighty God. He is the everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. The Apostle John reminds us in the book of Revelation that he is the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The King of Kings. 
the Lord of Lords, the bright and morning star, and about 60 other titles in the book of Revelation that I don't have time to go through. We look to God, we, we pray, we cry out to God in our sorrow because he is God, because of who he is. Because let me tell you, while they sang these songs on a journey, while they sang these songs on their way to Jerusalem, this is not about the destination, it is about the person. Folks, do all kind of trips under duress. I lived in New York City, and so I, I got to take a lot of people who visited New York City to a lot of touristy areas. One of which <clears throat> was Ellis Island. And there on a plaque, there is a poem by Emma Lazarus. It's called The New Colossus. And the 10th and 11th, lines of that po 11th line of that poem go like this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those, the homeless, the tempest toast to me, tempest tossed, excuse me, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. But that's not right, is it? Getting to a place guarantees us nothing. Getting to a destination makes no promises. Just because I got there doesn't mean that my condition will automatically improve. It's not about the destination. It's always been about the person. You see, God has told us, right, in Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 37, 2 Corinthians 6, and 30 some odd more variations of, of, of this that God has stated about what he has designed for him and for his people. It says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell among them. How many times have you read that in scripture? It's all over. It's all over from Genesis to Revelation, it is all over. He will be their God and they will be his people and he will dwell among them. It's not about the destination. When we look at the book of Revelation, if you, if you would go with me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where John describes his beautiful heavenly places, the greatest places in the universe. No, not Disney. This is truly the most wonderful place in all the universe, in all of creation. We have Revelation 21 verses three and four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's that phrase again in a different form. And here it goes. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We jump down to verse 11, and we see what makes that, sin, that scene great. It's not the diamonds and gems. It's not the streets that shine. It's not the awesome reflection of the place. It is, Revelation 21, 11 tells us that that city had the glory of God. 
scroll down to verses 22 to 23, and we see John sees the city, and he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And we turn the page and go to Revelation chapter 22, and we see in the first five verses, the angel shows John the river of the water of life. And it says there in verse one that it was flowing from the throne of God and flowing of the Lamb. And later on, verse three, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of, and of the Lamb will be in it. Verse four, they will see his face. Verse five, and night will be no more, and they will need no light or lamp or of lamp or sun, excuse me, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever, and it's never been about the destination. It's about who's there. And I don't know about you, but I praise him for that. But it's always been about God. And as we pray, in our moment of sorrow, as the psalmist here prayed, I would call us to remember what he remembered. First and foremost, it was about God. Now, we get to the second verse. And we consider our position in prayer. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Behold. This phrase is in scripture th thousands of times. Um, basically what it says, it says, hey, look at this. Right, catch, catch your attention. Behold. It's calling us to, to right, it, it's, it's an attention grabber. See, I want you, the psalmist now wants us to think about what he's about to say next. Right, he's, he's getting us into the appropriate position of our prayer. And what is that position? We get, we get a word picture here of a servant. Servant looking at their master. Right? As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. So let's, let's imagine that scene. Now let's, 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 let's go back, and, and, and we, we didn't live then, right? We didn't live back then, but um, we've known the culture. We know about the history. We know that these servants would have been waiting on their master for everything. And the first thing they would have been looking to their master at, for, excuse me, is direction. The master walks in the room. They're looking and they're waiting to see what's gonna happen next. What does he need? What does he want? What is he going to tell me to do? What is he gonna point out? What task is there? They are expecting direction. They do not do anything outside of what they have been directed to do. 
If you see them working without the master, it's because at some point, the master said, you should do this. I waited tables at a very expensive restaurant in New York City. Oh. When I returned from San Diego, <laughs> I waited tables at, a very, at the Russian tea room. And I remember that I could not wait till I was fired from that job. <laughs> Every so often you'd walk in, and now it's not as much as an iconic restaurant now as it was 25 years ago, but the service was impeccable. A fork dropped to the floor before a customer would go and bend over to grab that fork. You had to be there with a new one. It was that kind of service. But it was also that kind of clientele. Now, I'm not gonna make any negative statements or judgments on those folks, but for whatever reason, most of them were not nice to me. But we were instructed to do what they wanted us to do, to be ready to answer their questions, to be ready to take care of their need. Even if they didn't realize it was a need, we were called upon to do so. That was what the servant did, he was ready because he had received direction and instruction. When we look to God, he does not leave us directionless. He does not leave us without a clue. God does not leave us suffering in a vacuum alone. He has provided us, oh, so much direction. He has given us his word to teach us. And in prayer, and when we come to him, he reminds us of that direction. So we stay fixed on him, awaiting what comes next. What else would a servant need from their master? Protection. Servant would need protection. They would be protected, kept. They were, they were safe. They were not left out to the elements. They were housed, they were fed, they were clothed, clothed, excuse me, and they were protected from outside danger and outside calamity. What else would they look to their master or mistress for? Provision. They would, lead, they would look for their needs to be met. The psalmist gives us this picture of, of, a, of, a, of a servant or a maid servant who not only is ready to serve, who not only is ready to do as directed, but is also sitting under the provision they are being fed by, they're being tended to, they're being, some of them employed, depending on what the status was. The master or mistress is taking care of their needs. And the psalmist here, in his suffering, in his plight, still recognizes that God is in the position symbolically of master, and us in the position of servant, we look to him even in our suffering for provision. And then something changes here in verse two. Notice in verse one, the psalmist begins praying I, right? Because to you I lift up my eyes. And then here at the end of Psalm two, he changes, he says, so our eyes. He 
miracle, so our eyes. So the servant does something else, he serves, right? When the, that's, that's the job, that's the function, that's the title, it's in the name, servant, we serve. Servant serves. But the servant doesn't just serve the master. The servant serves those who follow the master. The servant serves those who are under the master's care. And so the psalmist at this point changes direction. He starts the prayer. He, introduce, he comes into the moment of prayer and worship. Ah, he understands I am praying. This is my prayer. This is, this is my struggle. This is my suffering. But he does not forget to serve others. He does not forget to intercede for others. He does not forget to include the others, his community, in this prayer. Because he is not the only one suffering. He is not the only one about to complain in verses 3 and 4. doesn't stand alone. To a point, that's, that's comforting. That's comforting. I remember when my father died. Um, it wasn't comforting then when someone would come up to you, put their arm around your shoulder and says, hey, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I didn't want to hear that. And just, if you're ever consoling someone that has lost someone, that's in bereavement, that's in grief. Don't try to make it about you. Hey, I've been there, I know you, I can empathize, nah. If that's the only thing you have to say, just put your arm around the person and pray with them and just be with them. And if they need a meal, get it for them. And if they need a ride, do that. And if they need their kids picked up, do that. The worst thing you can do one of the worst things is that. Pastor Russell, it was then when my father passed, I realized the foolishness of much of my pastoral words to others in their suffering. I said, this is what I sound like to people. Here the psalmist recognizes that it's not only him. Language changes to include the community. And then we see another aspect. We, 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 we go from position. He understands, understands where he is. He understands his place. But then the prayer gets amped up a notch. Ooh, did I miss one? I did. Number four there is supposed to be persistence. So forget about posture for a minute. <clears throat> Persistence. Till he has mercy upon us. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Psalmist understood the need for persistence in prayer. Prayer, for the most part, is not a one-shot deal. Prayer is not a one-shot deal. Did you pray about that? Sure. Last Wednesday, 3.30. Prayer is not a one-shot deal. I mean, when I get up and I, I, I pray with the boys for breakfast, that's a one-shot deal. Lord, bless this meal, right? We give thanks for this meal. But prayer for our situations and prayer for our circumstances and prayer 
for God to help us or to answer us for something of significance typically is, it doesn't happen in a day. Jesus teaches us that example in Luke chapter 18. First eight verses, the parable of the persistent widow. You ever heard the story of the judge who didn't fear God or, don't, or didn't res respect men? I love how Jesus tells the story too. He repeats that a couple of times. And even the judge acknowledges that even though I don't fear God and even though I don't respect man, it's a great story. But it's a great illustration. And Jesus tells us the purpose of that right at the beginning. He told them the parable, right? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's what it says, verse one. He taught them so they would not to pray and not lose heart. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to that we should be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, right? Pray without ceasing. We see other figures in scripture who prayed. Even though we studied Elijah several months ago, but I'm not Elijah. And as of yet, God has not answered me with a ball of fire from heaven. things that are important I've needed to pray about. And the psalmist knew that this situation, this trouble that they were, they were facing was not going to go away with a simple, Lord, here I am. I need you to deal with me and to help me. One moment, one day. Pray until you get an answer. Whatever that answer looks like. <laughs> Whatever that answer is. It's not always yes. I like yeses. I like yeses. I do not like noes. But what I like even less is the wait. Right? I'll give you another recent example. I've been, I've been praying to God for a second vehicle. Now, you know what I've been praying for? Now, I took... I took the words, the counsel of James to heart. I prayed and I was specific. A 2020 or 20, excuse me, 2020 or later, Chevy Tahoe or Ford Expedition. Specific. But I also prayed that I didn't want the payment. <laughs> so you know what happened? The Lord blessed me with a car. A, two, a 2008 four-door sedan with 275,000 miles and an oil leak for free. Minus the $3,100 it took me to fix and the $442 it took me to register. God bless Florida. The car runs great. It gets me to where I need to go. Jokingly, I told my wife, God only heard half my prayer that I didn't want the payment. <laughs> tell you what, someone even provided me the, 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 the money for the registration before, they didn't even know it. God answers our prayers. The expedition? No. The payment? 
Yes. And maybe that exposition of Tahoe, maybe, maybe I'll just wait. Pray until you get an answer, whatever that answer looks like. We move to verse three and now the complaint comes in. And now we see what's on the screen there is posture. And so they're out of order, but posture. Have mercy upon us. And this is key in prayer. This is key when we come before the presence of God. The psalmist knew this. He begins his complaint. He begins his request, right? The first part was acknowledging who God is, right? The first part was saying, I'm here and I'm going to pray to God. And now I come out and I'm going to, I'm going to lay out my request. Here it goes. Here, here, here it is, God. Here, here comes a request. But he begins with a posture of humility. Earlier we said that we needed to pray God high. When we begin, after we have done that, we also have to remember to pray ourselves low. We pray ourselves low. Because Lord, have mercy on me. The only one that can have mercy on me is someone that has some kind of advantage over me. I'm not going to tell my, one of my boys, have mercy on me, that, but that doesn't make sense. That wouldn't make sense to them. You would say that if someone in a threatening position or a position of authority or if someone had something over you legitimately, legally, some kind of act of just, justice or correction, have mercy on me. My dad would chase me around the house when I got sent home from school. Have mercy on me, right? The, the, there, there was something I was afraid of. There's something the psalmist knew. He said, there, there's someone greater than I and I am low and I am nothing, and I need you to act in my favor. Have mercy on me. It's a posture of humility. Micah 6.6 6 says, what, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? The humility is the posture we need to have before God. God owes us nothing. Remember that. God owes you and me absolutely Nothing. Everything we have is by his grace and mercy. Everything. James 4, 6 through 9 says, but he gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We jump down to verse 9. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A posture of humility. Understanding that he is greater. I love John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3, of John chapter 3. I must decrease so he can increase. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man that had ever lived. Why? Because before Jesus, John the Baptist's following was immense. He had folks coming from all over. Jews coming to a baptismal pool in repentance. <laughs> People who, were, who, who, who wouldn't have even thought to be bothered by that. I, a Jew, need to repent. 
I, son of Abraham, a chosen one, yet they flocked to John the Baptist in the wilderness to be baptized. They flocked into the Jordan River to be baptized. And the man with this, this, this folks looking at him, thinking he was Elijah 2.0. This man stands at the bank of the Jordan while his disciples come to him and say, hey, look, People are going over there to Jesus' disciples to to be baptized. What do you say about that? I must decrease so that he can increase. That's the greatest man that ever lived per Jesus. And it's crazy to me to see the gall with which some believers and some churches and some preachers come to God as if he were a genie or an ATM machine, or even a servant. Carrie, I've heard a preacher command God, or try to. What is that? I mean, what is that? God gives the image of father and son, right? Father and son. What would happen if my son walked in and wanted something I didn't want to give it to him and he said, I command you to give it to him. What do you think would happen to my son? <laughs> this is being recorded, so I will leave it at that. <laughs> it would not go well for him. And that is such a, that is a, that's, that's the closest analogy to the distance between, between God and us, right? And then we go king and servant. And even that falls short of a transcendent, sovereign, holy, most high God. And us, a wormy, dusty hunk of sand. I mean, the difference is immeasurable. The difference is unfathomable, and yet men stand there and call themselves little gods, declaring and decreeing. Health and wealth, prosperity gospel. They name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. First, Peter reminds us in his first letter, in chapter one, he, he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and he reminds us that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. When we come to God, we come low. We come low. This new idea that Jesus is a friend of sinners. First of all, who gave him that title? Pharisees, the Jews. That was an insult. Who does he call his friends? If you obey my commandments, if you obey the word that I received from my father, you will be called my friends. You are no longer servants if you obey my commandments. You are friends. We have this laissez-faire Christianity, this laissez-faire gospel, this relevant gospel that is no gospel at all. 
when this gospel says that I can hang out in my sin and Jesus can hang out next to me and be all right with it. Someone bought me a t-shirt thinking I'd find it funny. Jesus is my homeboy. Apparently I did not find it funny and he did not like my reaction. I'm an ingrate. Jesus is God. Psalmist understood this. He had the appropriate posture. And once he brings that posture, once he gets there, he brings his plea. Still verse three, O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. He says it again. He brings his petition. He brings his plea. This evening, there were only two prayers. Next Wednesday, let there be four or five so that we can pray for you, so we can pray with you. In your life groups, when they ask if there is a prayer, do you have a need? Ask for prayer. Is there a problem that you can't deal with? Ask for prayer. Are you struggling? Ask for prayer. The point, the psalmist from his humbled, broken posture understands the need to ask him. It's that simple. Ask him. nothing deep about that here. <laughs> you do not receive because you do not what? Ask. There is nothing too small or insignificant or unimportant that God won't listen to you about. Nothing too small. It seems dumb. It seems silly. It's repetitive. I'll turn it around. Sometimes when we struggle, when we're struggling with, with, with a sin, the thorn that stays there, sometimes we, we pray about it and oops, here I am again. And oops, here I am again. And oops, here I am again. And you know what? Like after, after round three, you're like, eh, I don't want to pray about it anymore. Anybody been there? sitting on a chair, just staring into the void. Lord, I messed up again. You must really be tired of hearing this. You must be sick of me. Oh, no, 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 no. Ask. <coughs> Ask. There is nothing either too insignificant or nothing too great. Nothing too small, nothing too large that God cannot answer. No scenario that he has not encountered, no situation that has ever confused him. There is no problem that's ever befuddled him. He's never had to Google anything. He knows, he has it. He has the power and dominion and ability. What is your problem? What is your situation? 
So the plea comes. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ask him. Sometimes we are focused on just God's word. But prayer is equally important. A Christian, a believer who does not pray is weak, is unable to stand on his, we're unable to stand on our own, but is unable to stand, has no outlets. And after the plea, after we take that posture and we come to him, the psalmist, excuse me, after the, the psalmist then presents the problem. For we have had more than enough of contempt. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Bring God your problem. He is strong enough. Psalm 52, 55:22. cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. What, what do you got? What do you, what do you have? What do you have? There was a guy in high school, they used to call him, his name was Walter Spradley. He's called the wall. He was 6'4", 320 pounds. He would take on all comers. His, his, his arm was like the, this thick, like the tree in the front of the school. And he used to like to arm wrestle us. Almost snapped my arm in half. And he, that's what he stood there. He said, come on. Come on. And he'd go both arms. Come on. He'd stand there. He'd get up on the table, all 320 pounds of, of wall that he was. And he'd, come on. He'd scream in the cafeteria. <laughs> Kids. Good times. That's, that's a human. That's what God, what do you got? God stood at Calvary and did the thing that was most impossible, saving us, saving a humanity that was lost in their sins. There's no greater miracle than that on our end. There's no greater miracle that God shed his, shed his blood and give his life and take your sin and exchange your guilt and declare you righteous by giving you what he had in exchange for your stuff. He that knew no sin became sin for us. That's the greatest miracle. So what else do you have? There's no problem so big. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And Matthew 11, 28, 29 tells us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What do you have that he cannot handle? 
We carry these loads by ourselves. There's never been more people in this world. We've never been more connected. And yet, mental institutions and therapists and psychologists don't have spots on their schedule. So many people around us. So many connections. I have a thousand Facebook friends. I have two thousand Facebook friends. But we're alone. And we walk around sometimes with that burden. We walk around sometimes carrying this load. The psalmist, I can't, I cannot carry this anymore. All this stress from the outside, all, all these attacks from the outside, I can't handle this burden. Take it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Finally, we get to verse 4. The psalmist here presents the community's pain. God also wants you to bring your pain and suffering. Psalm 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, 3 says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. If you read through the Beatitudes, we learn about Jesus' compassion. We learn about the character and the heart of God. The psalmist says, our soul has had enough of the scorn of these who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. We've had enough. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the hurt. I'm tired of the suffering. God knows how to heal the body and the soul. And he will. We may not get the healing we're looking for here, but we might. God is still God. He still answers prayer. Let's go back to the heavenly scene in Revelation where we started. Revelation 21.4. And in glory at the ultimate end. When God's clock strikes zero and we are in his presence in glory. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God has an answer. Doesn't mean we will not suffer on this earth. I don't wanna, I don't wanna give that impression, because that's not true. Right, There's, Jesus has a lot to say about suffering and persecution for those who follow him. And the thing is, as Christians, we are not exempt from the human condition. We're not, we're not exempt. We're gonna get sick, right? We're getting older every day. <laughs> every day I find something that's not working, right? Right. Oh, now it's this knee. Oh. <laughs> it was one eye before, Wade. Now, 
Now I squint from both. I used to, right, I, I'm, I'm a little jealous of my kids because they'll run, right? They'll run, they, 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 they fall halfway down the stairs, right? Oh, bump, bruise, and then a day later, nothing. How did you get that bruise? I don't know. <laughs> Anthony came back home with his huge skid on his knee. I was like, how did that happen? <laughs> the other day I pulled my back. I was laying down. I'm kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> but... <laughs> That day's coming, apparently. <laughs> We're not exempt. We're not exempt. Our body's gonna fail us. People will fail us. Family will fail us. Here's a big surprise. People in church will fail us. People next to you will fail us. Your coworkers, they'll fail you. Your own kids. Spouses, it happens. Suffering, suffering is a product of Genesis 3. It is a product of the fall. But as we pray, just as the psalmist did, as we pray about our own difficult situations, we remember that we should give him our burdens, set aside all those unnecessary weights that hold us down and keep our eyes on Jesus. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, where? Of the throne of God. Look up and ask him.